Let's pray for our servicemen and women. And do we have anyone here in the service this morning who are serving in our military? Anyone here? If you're here, stand, please. Anyone at all? Anyone who has served in the past, if you would stand. Some of our, our veterans. Okay. Yeah. Let's pray. Father God, we do want to remember all of those men and women over the years, literally hundreds of thousands, who have given their lives, who have shed their blood. That we may sit here today in comfort and at peace and enjoy the liberty and freedoms that we have. And Lord, we lift up those who are serving now that you would protect them and spare their lives. Lord, and just watch over them. And we praise you, Lord, for the salvation that we have in you. We don't have to worry that when we leave this life, we have eternity to spend with you. Thank you again for your shed blood and the fact that you purchased our salvation on the cross. Allowed your body to be beaten and broken for us. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you turn back to that passage in Hosea, but turn to chapter 10 this time. Hosea chapter 10. Hosea is one of the 12 minor prophets. And the only reason that those 12 prophets are called minor prophets is because they're just shorter than the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, and Daniel. Those are what we call the major prophets, and they're called major simply because they're longer, not because they're more important. All of God's Word is inspired, and the minor prophets are just as important as the major prophets. They're just a little shorter in length, the only reason why. So we find some Tremendous encouragement from Hosea this morning. Chapter 10 and verse 12. Look there with me. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Until He comes to rain righteousness on you. Hosea was a prophet of God to the northern kingdom. You may remember in your history of the Old Testament where there was a civil war and the nation of Israel was split, divided from north and south. handful of prophets were prophets to the northern kingdom, Hosea being one of those along with Amos. 
and a few others had God had used to prophesy to the northern kingdom. And they were judged by Assyria some years later. And following that, about 150 years later, the southern kingdom was judged as well. And God used the nation of Babylon to judge them and cart the people of God off into slavery for about 70 years. Well, Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom in the period of about 755 to 715 B.C. in the 8th century. Hosea was a contemporary, again, of Amos and of Micah and was very much influenced by their ministries. He was assigned the burdensome task of preaching to a people who were familiar with the ways of God but were no longer walking in them. Hosea was a flaming evangelist who wept over the sins of Israel and was broken over the disobedience of God's people. And he knew both the need to be recognized and the solution to be embraced if God's people were to advert catastrophic judgment. Now, Hosea is perhaps the strangest book in all of the Bible because God instructed Hosea, his prophet, to marry a prostitute. And on top of that, her name was Gomer. (laughs) Bad enough to be a prostitute to have the name Gomer. I mean, poor Hosea. I mean, don't you feel bad for, for Hosea? And you may be asking, God, why? Why did you command Hosea, your prophet, to marry a prostitute, an unfaithful woman named Gomer. Well, there are several reasons. I want to share three of them with you quickly. Number one, there is an experimental reason. An experimental reason. By marrying an unfaithful wife, Hosea could perhaps, as no other single prophet, understand the anguish of God. And in God's heart over a the northern kingdom whose people were constantly committing spiritual fornication and adultery against Jehovah God. God had often compared his relationship to Israel as that of a marriage. Look with me at Isaiah 62 and verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom Rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Then Hosea chapter 2 and verse 19. Here in the same book of Hosea. I will betroth you to me forever. Talking about the nation, God's people, Israel. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. So, this was an experimental Reason. The second reason is an illustrative or illustrative reason, and that is that God's own marriage, or Hosea's own marriage, would become a walking and visible example of his message to Israel. Go back and look with me at chapter 1 a moment ago. That was read by Brother Mike. Look at chapter 1. Notice verse 2. 
When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So God commanded Hosea to marry this unfaithful woman for an illustration of how the, the nation of Israel was committing spiritual adultery against Jehovah God. Experimental reason. Illustrative reason. And there's a third reason. That was the prophetical reason. God would command him to name his children by those titles which would describe the future punishment and eventual restoration of Israel. Look at verse 3. There in chapter 1 again. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Rum Hama, which means Again, no mercy, no compassion, for I will have no compassion. Then skip down to verse 8. And the Lord said, or verse 9, And the Lord said, This second son, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Therefore, God had divine reasons for commanding Hosea to marry an unfaithful wife. Now, understand, this is a unique situation. In the life of the nation of Israel. And God made this request only once. Never before. And never again. So, God's ways are higher than our ways. Amen. His purpose was to bring His people back from their waywardness and sin. And to seek Him once again. Notice verse 12 of chapter 10 where the Bible says for it is time to seek the Lord. I want to share with you a portion of an article that I came across some time ago. It's an article written by Kirby Anderson who is the founder of Probe Ministries. I believe they're based in Dallas. And this ministry is a non-profit ministry assists the church in renewing the minds of believers with a Christian worldview to equip the church to engage the world for Christ. By the way, that's our calling, is it not, as believers? We're to engage the world for Christ. Well, Kirby Anderson writes, and it's a little long, so bear with me, but I believe it's relevant to our text this morning. He writes, and I'm quoting Kirby Anderson, doomsayers for many years have been predicting the decline and fall of this country, meaning America, the USA. While many of these short-term predictions have proved inaccurate, there's some truth to the prevailing belief that this nation will fall like every great nation before it. Apart from revival and reformation, this nation is destined to decline. The problem with many of these doomsayers is that while their prognosis is right, their diagnosis is wrong. Yes, the future is bleak, but our problem is not ultimately political 
economic, or social, as these doomsayers would have us believe, the decline of this nation, just as the decline of every other nation, is due to spiritual factors. The political, economic, social problems we encounter are the symptoms of the spiritual deterioration of a nation. Just as there are spiritual principles that influence the life of an individual, so there are political, spiritual principles that govern the life of a nation. And though we may feel that these are obscure and difficult to discern, in reality they are visible to anyone willing to look at the record of history. Our problem is that we don't really learn from history. George Santana said that those, quote, who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. The philosopher Hegel said, what experience and history teach us is that the people and government never have learned anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it. Or as Winston Churchill said, the one thing we have learned from history is that we don't learn from history. The refrains that are often heard are, it can't happen here, or our country is different. But the reality is that nations are born and die just like individuals. The longevity may exceed the average person's lifespan, but the reality is that nations also die. History has shown us that the average age of a great civilization is about 200 years. Countries like Great Britain exceed the average, while other countries like the United States are just now reaching the average age. Each of these great civilizations in the world passed through a series of stages from birth to their decline to their death. Historians have listed these ten stages. The first stage moves from bondage to spiritual faith. The second from spiritual faith to great courage. The third moves from great courage to liberty. The fourth moves from liberty to abundance. The fifth stage from abundance to selfishness. The sixth from selfishness to complacency. The seventh from complacency to apathy. The eighth from apathy to moral decay. The ninth moves from moral decay to dependence. And the tenth and last stage moves from dependence all the way back to bondage, where we began. These are the ten stages through which great civilizations have gone. Notice again the progression from bondage to liberty back to bondage. The first generation throws off the shackles of bondage, only to have a later generation through apathy and endurance allow itself to once again be enslaved. This is the direction of every other country that has ever passed through history. And this is a direction that this and every country is headed. Nations most often fall from within. And this fall is usually due to a decline in the moral and spiritual values within the family. As someone has said, as goes families, so goes a nation. There are many factors in the decline of a nation. Certainly a major one is the breakdown of the family, but other potent but less perceptible forces are at play in these power of ideas. 
Now, this is important. False ideas are bringing about the decline of Western culture. Carl F.H. Henry in his book, Twilight of a Great Civilization, says, and I quote, There is a new barbarism. This barbarism has embraced a new pagan mentality, not simply rejecting the legacy of the West, but embracing a new pagan mentality where there is no fixed truth, no moral absolutes, spiritual and, or I should say, situational ethics. What are situational ethics? Well, if the situation is not convenient for you, then you make a choice with the abortion issue. If this baby inconveniences my life, I will just kill it. That's situational ethics. No moral absolutes. No fixed truth. Today we live in a world where biblical absolutes are ignored. And unless we return to these biblical truths, our nation will continue to decline. To understand how we've arrived, and I'm still quoting Kirby Anderson at this point. To understand how we've arrived at this appalling situation, we need to go back a century and look at the influence of five intellectual believers who still profoundly affect the modern world. The first one is Charles Darwin, the publisher of The Origin of Species. You know Charles Darwin, Darwinism and evolution. Darwinism, as it came to be called, not only affected the field of biology, but became the foundation for the fields of anthropology, sociology, and psychology. His writings blurred the distinction between humans and animals since he taught that we are merely part of an evolutionary progression from lower forms of life. So Charles Darwin. Then we have good old Karl Marx who published the Communist Manifesto in 1850. Marx devoted his writings about to the demise of capitalism and the coming of communism and he understood the importance of ideas. Karl Marx once wrote, Give me 26 lead soldiers and I will conquer the world, meaning the 26 keys or the 26 letters in the English alphabet. Ideas. 26 lead soldiers. The pervasive influence of communism in the world today is a testimony to the truthfulness of this statement of how ideas affect the culture. Then we have a third individual, probably a less well-known individual, Julius Wellhausen. And so he influenced our culture profoundly. He was a German scholar whose theory on the dating of the Pentateuch, five books of Moses, completely transformed Old Testament studies. Wellhausen argued that the early books of the Bible were not put together by Moses, but gathered together over many centuries later by several different men called editors or redactors. And they just threw it all together and wove various strands of the Old Testament together. He and his disciples established an anti-supernatural approach to the scriptures, which is influential in many denominational seminaries today. So we have Darwin, Marx, Wellhausen, and then a fellow named Sigmund Freud. 
He merely took the logical implications of what Darwin was doing in biology and applied them to what today is known as psychology and psychiatry. Freud argued that humans are basically autonomous and therefore do not need to know God. Instead, we need to know and understand ourselves since our problems stem from those secret things that have evolved in our lives from the past. And then finally, John Dewey. Some of you will remember that name. He's the founder of the modern educational system. He published his first work, The School and Society, in 1899. John Dewey was also one of the co-signers of the Humanist Manifesto, the second Humanist Manifesto in 1933. Dewey, like Darwin and Freud, believed that humans are autonomous. They don't need to have an authority above them, but can evolve their own system of education. Thus, the very foundation of modern education is anti-supernatural. Ideas have consequences, and false ideas can bring down a nation. The theories of these five men are having devastating consequences in our nation. Unless we return to biblical absolutes, our nation will continue to decline. Our society has rejected God's revelation. And when a society rejects God's revelation, that society is on its own. Moral and spiritual anarchy is the natural result. At this point, God has given the sinners over to a depraved mind so that they do the things which are not proper. And wow, is not this pervasive in our culture. The final judgment, final stage is judgment. God's judgment rightly falls upon a nation who practiced idolatry and immorality. Certainly, an eternal judgment awaits those who are guilty. But a social judgment occurs when God gives a nation over to its sinful practices. When a nation rejects God's word, bad consequences follow. Thank you for bearing with me with that article. Very important information. Don't you think it's time to seek the Lord? Just like Hosea says here. Look at verse 12 again. For it is time to seek the Lord. Don't you think it's time to seek the Lord instead of seeking everything else except the Lord? God is calling us to repentance and to brokenness before Him. When was the last time that you were truly broken over the sin in your life and you wept over the sin? in your life. When was the last time that occurred for you? Andrew Murray, a great revivalist, said a true revival means a revolution. A casting out 
the spirit of worldliness and making God's love triumph in the heart. You see, God wants to revolutionize your life daily. Take up your cross daily, Jesus said, and follow me. He wants to revolutionize your life. He wants to radically alter your personality. Galatians 2.20, where Paul writes, I am crucified with Christ. He said, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives through me. And the life which I now live by faith, I live trusting in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up. He wants to alter your personality. We need to allow Christ to live His life through our life. God wants to redo you, remake you, reform you, revive you, reawaken you to the things of God. Why? Because He loves you and wants to have fellowship with you. You see, our sin breaks, it severs that fellowship with God. First John 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we're what? We're a liar. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and all of our unrighteousness. Revival is for the church. It's for you. It's for believers. It's for me. It's not for lost people. It's for the church of the living God. And if the church is revived, then the church will reach the spiritually lost. And this will not happen until we really believe that people really die and really go to a literal hell. That's what the Bible teaches. And if we really believe that, then we will do something about that, which is to preach the gospel to the world. It is time to seek the Lord. So church, I'm asking you to join me in praying that God's Spirit will fall upon my life and your life and we will be consumed by the Holy Spirit. We will be filled and controlled with Him and do what God has called us to do. No authentic revival ever occurred in recorded history that was not preceded by prayer. Charles Finney, the great evangelist of the 19th century, said that revival is, quote, nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. A new beginning of obedience to God. Someone here today, you may need to start over. You may need to take a mulligan in your life. You may need a do-over. You may need to start again. It's never too late to start again. You've blown it. You've failed. You've sinned. God forgives sin. God forgives you. You may have had, lady, you may have had an abortion. God forgives you. And He wants you to move forward and to serve Him. You may have done some horrible thing in your life. God forgives you. Start over. Don't give the devil victory in your life. 
Kick him out of your life. Kick him out of your home. Greater is he who's in us than he who is in this world. Serve Jesus Christ and let him revive you again. The first step is a deep repentance, a change of mind that leads to a change of action. The word repentance literally means that. Meta, a change, know your mind, a change of your mind. It's an about face. It's a turning from your sin and turning to Christ and following Him and serving Him. It's a breaking down of heart. It's getting down into the dust before God with deep humility and forsaking your sin. Morris Chapman writes, there is always a cost in passionate praying. But that kind of prayer turns ordinary people into people of power. You want to have God's power in your life? Become a prayer warrior and seek His face. Samuel Chadwick writes, This kind of praying brings holy fire. It brings life. It brings the power of God. It is time to seek the Lord. Four ways I want to share with you quickly to seek spiritual renewal. They're based on this verse 12 of chapter 10 in Hosea. The first one is, so to yourselves. Notice what Hosea writes. So with a view to righteousness. So to yourselves, I believe the NIV says, this issue of righteousness. Gypsy Smith, who was a great evangelist, the last century. He was asked one time, how, Gypsy, how do you have, how do you experience spiritual revival? This was his answer. He said, find a place to pray and draw a circle around that area where you're praying and ask God to send revival and everything inside that circle. Meaning you. Sin revive. Church, we will not be prepared for a move of God in revival as long as we see the spiritual needs of others greater than our own spiritual needs. The person that needs to be revived is that person that you looked at in the mirror this morning before you came to worship. Gypsy Smith was right when he took his eyes off everyone else around him and drew the circle around himself. Look at your own life. Quit blaming others. Pointing your fingers at others. Look at your own life. And ask God to send spiritual renewal and revival into your life. If you want to participate in revival, then you need to draw that circle of responsibility around yourself. Revival begins with believers in Jesus Christ. It begins with you.
begins with me. So in righteousness. So to yourselves. The second one, Hosea, exhorted God's people to sow in righteousness. Notice what he says. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Hosea knew the need of the hour was not for God's people to learn more truth, but to obey the truth that they already knew. That's our case as well. A.W. Tozer writes, and he was correct when he contended the curse of the 20th century, and he's talking about our past century, obviously, but it applies to the 21st century as well, is that we think because we know something, we have something. That's the curse of the 20th century. Because we think we know something, we have something. No, we must be obedient to what we already know. And most of us in this room know plenty. We don't need another Bible study, another sermon to be obedient to God's Word. We need to apply the truth that we already know. And ask God to pour His Spirit into our lives. Now I know where Five Guys Hamburger Restaurant is. And I like going there. By the way, you know why it's called Five Guys? Because if you eat there too often, you'll look like five guys. <laughs> just I made that up. That's pretty good. <laughs> I know where it is, but just because I know where it is, that doesn't make me a hamburger, does it? Just because we know something doesn't mean we have something. We can know all the spiritual truth till it's coming out of our ears, but unless we apply it and be a doer of the Word, as James says in the New Testament, then it does us no good. We need to apply and start doing what we already know. So in righteousness, allow God to grow you and mature you. Get involved in disciple-making and become a disciple-maker and reproduce yourself in someone else's life. That's what God has called us to do. That's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. We must do that. So to yourselves, so in righteousness. Then thirdly, Hosea told the people of God to notice, he says, to break up your fallow ground. Fallow ground is soil that was once plowed but has been left dormant and untilled and unplanted for years on end. Thus God's Word is telling us who have experienced God's power but have failed to continue our walk with Him to plow up the hard places of our life. Let the Holy Spirit shake you up and dig you up and plow up the hard places of our hearts and let Him 
change us. Revival is a change of heart. It's a change of perspective. It's a change for the better spiritually. And allow God to change you and to renew you and to revive you. Let Him plow up the hard places of your life. The bitterness, the unforgiveness, the anger, all the hurt and all the pain and the poison that's debilitating you spiritually. Let God do a new work in your life and in your heart and let Him make you into a soldier for Jesus Christ and to serve Him with all of your heart. Let Him plow up that fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord. Then He says finally, the last phrase of verse 12, describes this incredible blessing that will come to God's people. Notice what he writes. Until He comes to rain righteousness upon you. The word rain here literally means to teach. God wants to teach you. He wants to pour His righteousness. Ours is of filthy rags, right? We have no righteousness in our own. But Jesus Christ clothes us with His righteousness. Until He comes to reign, to teach righteousness on you. What a marvelous image. God wants to pour down His Spirit on us. He desires to shower us with blessings of a spiritual nature as we submit to the Holy Spirit of God. Our prayer must be that as we prepare our hearts for spiritual renewal, that God would instruct us and help us to sow in righteousness by allowing Him to break up the hardness of our hearts and by seeking Him. And then we will see God's presence and we will experience heaven-sent, Holy Spirit-empowered, life-changing, Revival. That must be our desire as we move forward in the 21st century. Things are not looking so great. But we have a God who is in control and He is sovereign and He reigns in righteousness. And we are to be His people. We are to humble ourselves before Him and call upon His name and allow Him to change us, to make us more like Him. Amen? May God bless His Word. May we apply His Word to our lives as we go today. I want to invite you as we're going to have a short time of invitation. God is speaking to you and calling you to spiritual renewal and revival, of which I believe He's calling all of us to that. You may want to make that public. You may want to come. You may just want to simply come and pray. Whatever God leads you to do. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then today is your opportunity.
to do that. What greater place to do that in the family of God before these witnesses? Give Him your life. Trust Him. Believe in Him. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin. And guess what? He will forgive you. And He'll clean your life up. And He'll give you power for living and hope for tomorrow. Amen.